So there's nothing you need to know that would widen your voice, but that there is no harm that will come to you when you express yourself more fully. In this building was a piano and there was four blind guys standing around that piano. They were gonna be the entertainment once the march ended. They didn't know I was there, they're blind. So I'm a little kid sitting at a table just waiting for my father to come back. And they started rehearsing and the sound of their voice, it was, let me. Oh, I know I am. They started kicking up these gospel songs. Yeah, and my body just went into chills. I grew up with the guys in Bon Jovi. That was the same club circuit we were in. Wow. So I played with Tico and Richie and Alec and John was always at the back of the club. He was not singing on stage very often. And so the end result always figures into our behavior. And we forget this when we're recording and we become intimidated when we perform because our end result we think is to not make any mistakes. La 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 la. I will purposely do that to desensitize my defensive nature. Because if I walk into that bar thinking I must sing perfectly, I'm going to have a horrible foundation for that voice. I'm all excited for today's episode because we have with us Mark Baxter, who's one of the most passionate vocal coaches I've ever come across because his teaching approach is a mix of theoretical knowledge and practical experience he gained from performing 3,000 gigs. His clients include two of my favorite singers, Steven Tyler, Gary Sharon, and many more phenomenal artists. He's also an equally passionate rock and roll singer of the band Restless Souls, and they are back providing us some great entertainment during these times. And you can join them live virtually on October 2nd, 2020 through the link in the description of this episode. What a pleasure to have you, sir. And I've been watching all your videos for past couple months and even watched your live performance, which I believe was recorded 30 years ago even though you still look as fresh and cheerful today. Uh, how's the preparation going on for the October 2nd performance? Because it must be a delight for you to be back with bandmates and getting that same energy running through your blood. Yes, and nice to meet you. Thank you for asking me to join you. Glad to be here. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I haven't been performing regularly in probably 20, maybe 15 to 20 years. So it feels very good to get reunited with old friends and learn the songs again. It's like virtually I have to relearn them. And so uh, <laughs> many of them I forgot about. And so I've, uh, I've been testing my own technique because now I have to achieve the flexibility that I had when I was much younger. And so it's, it's been a eye-opening an ear-opening experience. <laughs> yeah, and we surely can't wait to watch it. And I'm pretty sure you are the best in the industry when it comes to singing healthily. And you'll deliver an amazing performance and we'll have the same fun. And I truly admire and respect your philosophy behind training singers. I even read that your curiosity about human voice led you to audit many of Dr. Stevens courses at Harvard Medical School in order to gain a deeper understanding of the physiology of the voice and the true lines between use and abuse, 
even your book, The Rock and Roll Singer Survival Manual, which I believe is one of the best source out there in the market and the link would be in the description for anyone who needs to check it out. It also has some great information like describing sounds in adjectives like bright instead of behavioral references like chest, head, mix. Also to allow your resonance and high notes to happen instead of forcing them out. I can confidently say that the work you put in your singing career since you were a child, you have been putting similar effort, if not more, in researching and putting into the human voice. And I'm curious to know, what was the moment you thought I can go against the traditional norms and make it much simpler and true to what humans are rather than making aspiring singers go through hell because the way you take those <laughs> scientific terms and condense them down into simple phrases is so remarkable that I've never seen a single elaborate chart in your book which talks about how to pronounce certain alphabets. It's just practical knowledge that even a six-year-old can understand and apply. And I think that's very important. Uh, to answer your question, there was no one moment other than seeking a result instead of a process. Much of the education system in India and in uh, the States, in the United States, is based on a process that one must enter in at the beginning and go through many stages. And so it's virtually built to be a long-term commitment. Right. And I often thought that was not very, uh, it's not very user-friendly in terms of some people have a little more comfort with singing, let's say using singing as an example. I knew of people that could just open their mouths and sing wonderfully. And when I did so, it wasn't a wonderful sound at first. And so that puzzled me as to why we all have the same anatomy, yet some people are very comfortable singing and therefore do so very well and others struggle. And so if, if you take everybody and put them through the same course, that's not fair to those that would excel. And it's not fair to those that need a little more or different explanation as to what's going on inside them. So what I found was that the physiology is important, but that's not what's running the show. That's essentially like talking about piano parts when you're giving a piano lesson. And so the, the act of, in other words, the asking of what do you want this instrument to do that's the first step every musician uh, you know, approaches the instrument with. And they have music on their minds instead of the hammers and strings that are inside a piano. And so eventually getting to know how the instrument is built may allow a little deeper connection with the instrument. But as an introduction to it, it's just simple. We have 10 fingers and you wanna apply them to the keys in a musical way. And when we have the same body parts as an instrument, we have an actuator, and that's just simply the airflow, right? We have these two little vibrating structures, yeah. and that's the vocal folds, and then we have all this airspace, and that becomes a resonator. So we're built just like every other acoustic instrument, and therefore the translation, if you will, I think uh, when I went to college at first, I thought that it was more fear-based, that everything I was told was more of be careful, you'll permanently damage this or you'll never be good at that. And I found that the fear was just more intimidation. I already had plenty, thank you. And so I, did, I, wanted, to get, I wanted to get rid of it. I didn't want more worries, I wanted less worries. True, it really feels great to hear that how in your own journey of 
protecting and finding healthy ways to use your voice, you are now sharing the skills with many singers and improving their voice. I was even reading that you started as a band with your elder brother and your neighbor. During that time, you could do those screams and all the rock star stuff, but didn't know how to use the middle voice. And this is something which I want to know that how can one add emotion and sing from within and be vulnerable with pure authenticity at normal volume and pitch? Because mostly people associate emotion with singing louder and higher, like James Brown sort of thing. Yes. And so uh, I don't know how old you are, but I'm assuming you're, you're quite young. 17 last year of high school <laughs> okay so you're 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 a little older than i was when i started that band with my brother so when you're 17 years old uh, emotions are often expressed physically and so when you're mad you ball your fists maybe you know me and my brother we used to get into fights a lot just because we we couldn't work things out verbally we didn't have the skills to do so so we would just get mad at each other and start throwing fists and, and that's how <laughs> That's how boys work it out early on. And so yeah. therefore I equated like you are that push whenever I pushed my voice, that would equal passion. And that's not necessarily how it's received. You'll discover after a while, there needs to be a little deeper library, a little deeper uh, paint box, if you will. Mm -hmm. If you think of how an artist applies paint to a canvas, when they're making a picture, if everything is just black, and dark blue, then there'll be a certain mood on there. And that might be very striking for one picture. But if you look at that artist and after 20 pictures, everything is black and gloomy. After a while, you're like, do you have any other colors in your paint box? Because yeah, that's right. And so I was you know, screaming out the songs. And then after a while, after a set of 17 songs, let's say, uh, everybody would still be standing there unmoved in the little, you know, performances that we would do because it was clear that was my only, that was my only color to paint with. And so therefore, in order to get more of a reaction out of a listener, you have to demonstrate that you have intention so that when you do scream, that it's very powerful message. And so you and I are talking right now. And if we were to get into a disagreement, and then get passionate about that disagreement, at some point, we would be shouting at each other. Pons, I tell you, you're out of your mind. I can't believe you think that. <laughs> I will let that happen. <laughs> so this is my point, though. Even though, you know, you're in India, I'm in America, shouting would be, you know, we don't need to shout for volume's sake. It would just be the emotion that would take over us. If I said something that so upset you, you would have to come back at me with a really harsh voice. True. So that's what we imitate. And that's the key word. That's what we imitate when we sing. We imitate how humans interact with each other. And so if I'm always yelling at you, after a while, I get the reputation of just being crazy. I'm just out of my mind. I'm unable to articulate anything. I'm just yelling all the time. And if I was only quiet like this all the time, just never raised my voice, this would seem restrictive after a while. And so you wouldn't believe, at first you may believe I'm just a very nice, gentle person, but after a while it would seem like, wow, he has no emotion whatsoever because he's always talking in this voice. It's always very soft. So the spectrum is what I'm talking about. So from very loud to very soft, from bright to dark, we humans, all humans of all cultures, respond to the sound of someone's voice 
because it has a lot of information in it. It tells us what that person's feeling. It tells us what that person's intention is. So if somebody says, Parth, I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to beat you up right now. And he says it like that. That's kind of, kind of strange. <laughs> I would be like kicking his ass. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then if someone goes, hey, I'm going to kick your ass. Blah, blah, blah. This sounds like somebody that's ready to do it right there. And then if someone goes, I'm going to kick your ass. I'm telling you, I'm, you wait. When I see you, I'm going to beat you up. That's mixed message right there. Because that sounds like they're really going to hug you instead of beat you up. And so we use, we singers, we use the sound. It's called timbre or timbre, right? And so the timbre of our voice is what really goes into the subconscious of the listener. The lyrics come into the conscious, tells, you know, the person, I'm in love today. And we sing a love song and it's all very clear because the lyrics are saying I'm in love. But if I sang that while shouting, it would, it would bring a, a subcontext. It would be a, an ominous thing in there. Sure. And that's really useful now. It gives dimension to the performance, whereas just hitting the pitches is never enough. It's always about what is the singer feeling? Because the listener wants to know that to know if they agree with you. Yeah, that's really right. I truly believe there's that balance and how you express emotions in real life. If we can incorporate that into singing and not become completely different person and still be in touch with our human side it would have much better an emotional appeal to the listeners and i really like these quotes which you share on twitter and facebook uh, you share this on facebook that focusing on pitch and ignoring your tone is like focusing on your appearance and not on how you smell and I'm tired of how many times that has happened with me. I'm talking about both of it. <laughs> so I want to know, how do you describe tone? And is this something one can develop? Or is it unique to every individual and they need to be united with it? Uh, yeah, the answer to your question is yes. It is both unique and I find that it needs to be expanded for many people. Not because they are ignorant, because they are inhibited. So you speak like your parents just like I speak like my parents. And so when we first are born, we're exposed to sounds. So you speak English, I speak English, but we clearly have different mannerisms in the way we speak, right? That's right. In India, there's a certain turn of the timbre of the voice hmm. as, as there is in different parts of the United States here. I'm in the northern part of the country. In the southern part of the country, they speak very different sounds. And so, and that's true with a lot of big countries is that there will be different dialects in different locales. And so depending on what your household was at the very beginning of your life, your brain was programmed with that as a, as a very important manner of communication because that's your survival. When you're an infant, your survival is based on your ability to ask for help, to, to cry out. And so we do so in a sound that mom and dad or whoever is in charge of your care we do so in a way they would respond to. And so if I spoke Chinese to my mother and father, they would not respond. And therefore my brain said, you better learn English. And therefore I did. So this is my point. If there's a, a, a baby, a human baby is born with the ability to speak any of the 6,000 languages that exist on our planet, any one of them, a baby could speak right on day one. But it's only exposed generally to one, maybe two, sometimes three languages early on. 
And so the brain very quickly starts decoding what these little noises mean that other people are making because it seems to be important. And so we instinctively know how to cry. We instinctively know how to laugh. But what our instincts tell us is learn the language. We don't, we're not born with that knowledge, but we learn how to learn. In other words, learning to learn is that's what right. we're all, Yeah, that's our capability. Yeah. And so just, it just depends what's in the household. Yeah, I really like this point where you share that we inherit these voices from our parents and learn it from people. And I was even reading that your main aim is to show the person where his true singing voice is, where he is himself. And I had this question in mind that how can one figure out their own original timbre when they are suffocated with so many voices the day they are born? Yeah, great point. That's a great question. And that's why I work with exercises more than singing songs with the people I work with. Because when we sing a song, we are, like you said, suffocated with all of these choices of people we've heard sing before that we admire, or parents, or the locale, or the genre that we love. So there's a lot more informing our voice than just sing this note ah, with your own sound. And so if I use an exercise, the singer has not had the experience of hearing their mother or father or favorite singer sing this little melody that I invent. And so we don't have a reference and all we're left with is what pitch, what timbre, what volume and what duration. Because when you break a sound, any sound down, those are the four components of it. And there are no more other questions to ask because what we tend to ask is what's good, what will people like, right? <laughs> Am I being respected if I make this sound? Those are different questions. And so they get very confusing after a while because we're trying to be pleasing to people. And that's, a, that's a usually a very thankless pursuit. So True. those four things, pitch, the tone or timbre, the volume, and the duration, that's all one needs to address. And the result will be your sound. Yeah. And one of the favorite lines which you have shared, which I like is that we applaud people for behaving like a two-year-old on stage and we arrest them for doing the same thing in home. Also <laughs> that the best singers are the craziest one, like Little Richard, James Brown, or the one who is grateful to you for saving his voice, Steven Tyler. How yeah. can one add that craziness in themselves or get reunited with it? Because I heard James Brown say something you got a song, you need to fill it with something or it won't move anybody. And I wish to know, is there some technique or procedures of looking at our lyrics and music to feel that crazy side and ignite it? Yes. And so you're asking great questions uh, because you cannot pretend to be someone like Steven Tyler. Uh, when, while I'm working with him, it's very clear to him, to me, that I am not that kind of person that he is. He is the same way whether he's on stage or off stage. It's exactly the same. It's not a, an act. So that's nothing that he is trying to be. It's simply him being himself. And so when I am myself, there's no need for me to apologize that I'm not as exciting of a, of a person as he is. So when he walks into a room, he tends to be really animated and really, you know, like yeah. he's just a two-year-old in a grown-up body. And so, therefore, that's very exciting, but it's also very exhausting to be around because he takes a lot of attention up. And so I thought when I was your age that I had to be like that in order to be a rock star or, or, or in order to be captivating. 
and so did James Brown, and so did Little Richard. They thought, because they all started very young, that in order to be uh, interesting, they had to be just really animated and crazy. They happen to be extroverts, and I happen to be an introvert, just by nature. And so therefore, it goes against my nature to always be animated like that. So I tend to sing differently than you know Steven Tyler does. I tend to sit and behave differently when I'm with people. And that's not for me to apologize about that. It's for me to allow that to be available for all to consider. Because the people you mentioned, yes, they're all you know, 100 watt light bulbs, all of them. But there are other singers that are very, very famous. Take uh, Paul McCartney, for instance, he's a, you know, or Billy Joel, or somebody, uh, Josh Groban. He's a very mild-mannered, subdued, introverted almost person with a gorgeous voice and a very successful career. So you, you don't have, the singer doesn't have to be anything but themselves in order that people can feel a connection because those that are interested in a Josh Groban type person, well, he represents that. And those that are interested in him tend to not be interested in a Steven Tyler type person. And so there's a big rainbow out there of choices and we all get to say who we like best. Yeah, and uh, that's really what I like about your uh, technique and your approach that how you describe about just being yourself and you even though when we start you no know, aspiring singers they listen to a variety of singers and then their final voice sometimes is a combination of both or straight imitation of a single singer and i really read this great exercise which you mentioned about while you're practicing before the performance the training part then you have to sing the lyrics and exaggerate everything your facial expressions your bodily movement as if you are writing the lyrics even though that's not what you're going to do on stage still that would give you and open you up and i just had this thing in mind if we just want to know ourselves that this is who i am that i want to sing this song even if it's a self-written song in the purest form possible how should i practice it out to take out those emotions which i know i was not even aware of but would touch the audience and great question so you would read them like like literally a love letter so if you were to write the lyrics out and i recommend you handwrite lyrics out helps memory and then read while recording yourself reading back the lyric if you sound like a robot which is usually what a 17 year old male sounds like reading anything. And so you have a nice animated speech, but most guys would be like, I love you very much. You mean the world to me. This is the most I've ever felt for somebody. That usually happens after puberty. <laughs> yes, okay. So now you know what I'm talking about. So now you take that, you listen back and you go, oh God, that sounds like a robot. That's not what I want to express. So then again, it doesn't have to be shouting, but then to sing, at last, I found a love that I can truly believe in. As you continually read it, you will then remind yourself, I want to read this to somebody. And the question is, what do you want that somebody to feel? So right now you're making a podcast and you want people to be interested. So you speak in a more animated manner than you would when you ask your mother where your other t-shirt is, if it's in the laundry or not. You wouldn't be like, mom, I want to know where that green t-shirt is that you gave me for my birthday. Is that in the laundry or is it in my closet? That's not how yeah. you would speak to your mother, but it is how you're doing this podcast for good reason. 
And so the end result always figures into our behavior. And we forget this when we're recording and we become intimidated when we perform because our end result we think is to not make any mistakes. And that's so not why people are coming to hear us sing. They're coming to be moved by something. And so therefore, as I read my lyrics, I'll listen for inflection of where I'm pausing, where am I going breathy, where am I slightly louder, where am I slightly softer, and I will make notations on the lyrics. So now I've literally got a script of wait here, go a little softer there, underline this word, put a pause here. So when I sing, at last, my love's come along. So I can change up based on the script I've written until it feels like it's a, the manner in which I want to express. Wow, that's truly beautiful singing right there. And you should great approach on you know, igniting that emotion. And I believe when we read our lyrics and write it down again and again, it would images would start coming out that when I wrote that certain part, that would also you know, help in figuring out the emotions. And I truly love that. I've also heard that how, how you shared that your parents would kind of keep warning you how it's not a great career choice. And your father would say that no one in our family has any music relation, etc. Still, the reason you continued is because you felt the most comfortable on stage. And it felt like a place where you could truly be vulnerable and be yourself. Even when I watch your videos on YouTube, it feels as if this is something you wished you had as a child growing up because the quality and simplicity is so beneficial for singers out there. And I highly encourage you all to check out his YouTube channel. If you just want to sing good, the link would be in the description. I want to know what was the moment where you felt that music could be your calling? Was it a particular gig or a memory attached to a school performance? Because I truly respect you didn't pursue music to attract people or look cool. It was much deeper than that. Way deeper. Is I had a lot of uh, insecurity as a child. And I was very, you know, um, I know now that it's from literally the chemicals. So in my, in my brain and in many creative people's brains, there is a different chemistry that allows us to have very creative ideas, but also to be super sensitive about our feelings. And so when I was very young, younger than you, I thought my feelings were informing me that I was a loser, that I was invisible, that no one liked me. I thought many, you know, depressing things. And so it was, it was music that always made me feel whole. Music always made, like when I would listen to my stereo, I would escape those feelings, those negative feelings I had. Even if it was a negative song I'm listening to, it would help me by sort of escorting it. But the, the main ignition for me in 60s, uh, uh, in 1968, 67, in, uh, in America, there was a lot of racial tension. And so my parents were very liberal and therefore they were very active in social justice causes. And this is going back 50 years. And so as, uh, as there were uh, demonstrations and marching in the street, my father brought me to one of those demonstrations, but there was going to be trouble. It was, uh, you know, rumored. And so therefore he placed me in a, in a room. I was 11 years old and he told me to wait in this, uh, what was a youth center. I was there by myself. Just, it was where the march was going to end. 
but he was going to participate in the march and then come back and meet me at this building. In this building was a piano, and there was four blind guys standing around that piano. They were going to be the entertainment once the march ended. They didn't know I was there. They're blind. So I'm a little kid sitting at a table just waiting for my father to come back, and they started rehearsing. And the sound of their voice, it was, let me... They started kicking up these gospel songs, yeah. and my body just went into chills and went. I just felt an incredible <laughs> cocktail of emotion. That sixties vibe, yeah. that sixties vibe, that gospel vibe. I was protected from that until then. Like I had never heard that in my household, and I'd never heard grown men hollering like they were kids. And so they were stomping their feet and clapping their hands, and they were just so joyous and so free in what they were doing that I cried as I was sitting there. And that emotional memory has stuck with me to that day. I still remember the sound of their voices. And I just remember that, that ability they had seemed so, I was so envious of their ability to take what they were feeling and let it out because it seemed like that would be the relief I needed. And so as you read, I've often said that I, I, as much as some people are afraid of performing, I'm attracted to it because I love the way I feel. I love who I am when I'm on a stage and I'm very comfortable in that thing because I labeled that place, a stage as my safe space where most people label it the microscope or where they're judged the most. For me, that's where I feel at home. And so it is. Uh, it was that one instance that just made me notice that singing was the, the most powerful way to manage your emotions because there's no side effect. What a beautiful story about it. That It's really great to hear how can four blind guys inspire you to sing and most importantly, become one of the best coaches as well now. And I was reading this article where you shared and there are so many great articles on your website. I just enjoy reading them in my free time. It's such great education and so simplistic as well. You shared the bonus of caring for myself was a better relationship with my father and how you detach yourself from your inner cynic, which had your father's voice as a result of which all the external remarks didn't affect you. And that was a really brave thing to do on your side because it happens not only with musicians, but with comedians and other artists as well. One of my favorite being Freddie Mercury. And how were you able to fight that inner cynic and started feeling your identity as a singer? Because this is really powerful stuff for anyone looking to do anything great. The most important thing to know, and I'm 64 years old right now. And so the most important thing to know is that that inner cynic will not go away. And so therefore, when I was your age, that inner cynic was very loud in my mind. And it would keep me from doing things that I wanted to do because I would ask it if I could get permission. And it would say, no, you're not a good enough singer or you're not this or you're not that. And that voice was like I wrote my father's voice. It was his opinion that I internalized. And so it, I gave that authority to that inner cynic and slowly over my years, I pulled it into balance. So it's more of a counter where I have permission now to pursue things that I feel are good for me and my inner cynic barks away at me constantly still, but at least now it sounds like the voice is in another room. It's more distant now, 
where it used to be yelling in my ear, it's now far enough away where I can go, I hear it, but I'm not going to pay any attention to it. And the example I give people is that if you are living in a city, I don't know if they have uh, car alarms in New Delhi, but there's a lot in Boston or New York City, every car has an alarm and often they will go off by mistake. And so you hear alarms going off a lot when you live yeah, in the city. We used to do it on purpose just to annoy. <laughs> <laughs> so my point is after a while you become, you do not respond when you hear it. So when you just move into the city and you hear an alarm, you're like, oh, and you run to the window and you go like, what's the matter? What's going on? And then very shortly after moving in the city, after a while you hear the whoop, 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 and you're like, oh, there's that alarm again. It's like, and there's no response. And so that's what I encourage people to do is view their inner cynic as a false alarm. It's not your car. It's not your house that's going off. The alarm is not the truth. It's not a universe calling to you. It is the negative side of you finding a voice. And it's legitimate, but it's not something you need to obey. And when I was your age, I used to obey it. I thought it was the voice of authority or the universe. And it's, and it's not. And so therefore it deserves a counter voice. And that's what I developed through music. And that allowed me then to have much better relationships with my wife, with my son, with anybody, because I could, I can hear negative, I can feel negative stuff coming up and I can filter it by saying, no, that would not be appropriate. I don't really feel that way. Sometimes I can, I can manage that better than others, but I'm always aware now that I have a choice you have a negative side and a positive side, and I don't always have to obey the negative. That's right. And true respect for you for doing that. And look what now we got such a great vocal coach as well as a rock star for us younger generation to look up to. And I just want to know that when you were younger, sometimes it's hard, especially when you're that insecure. You reminded me of this short interview of Conan O'Brien. He's a talk show host. He goes to these community colleges and pe- young student, one of the students said, I want to be like you, but the thing is I cannot perform in public because of insecurity. How do I get rid of that? And he said, this is something you can't get rid of. And because he himself had insecurities, I want to know when you are that young and you're fighting those insecurities through music, it's such a great thing. Still, when your parents are not able to understand you and support you, how it feels. It feels like you're going swimming against the current is how it feels. It feels like every day you're doing something wrong is how it feels. And that's not a very comfortable feeling. And so when, you know, my father would say, you're crazy, you're ruining your life, you're heading down the wrong way, you know, stop this fantasy, you're just fantasizing that you're going to be a musician, you're not, it's not good, you're not talented. And so that I did it anyway, felt like I was disobeying uh, everything, you know, again, the universe, so I felt like I was swimming the wrong way. And, and therefore, there was always a worry in my heart and in my gut, always that feeling of like, I'm going to be in trouble. My point to you is that I had that feeling anyway, like even when I was doing things that I was told to do, if I got a good grade in school, I still feel, I still felt that kick in my gut, like something's wrong. And therefore, if you're going to feel that way, then it doesn't matter whether you do something good or bad, you're going to feel that way anyway. And so I, I, in other words, just put one foot in front of the other, like Conan did, like many artists do. And I feel very 
obligated to remind young people like yourself, in my position, I've worked with very successful performers, right? And what I found to be the common denominator was insecure. And so the point is, it looks like it looks like I am the the most wisest, most you know uh, secure vocal coach on the planet. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing here. It looks like that when I make a video, when I write something, right? And I also want to always let people know I have as much doubt in myself as I always had. I just now have a little more history where I can say to myself. I remember being terrified to, to do this, but I lived through it. I remember being scared walking on stage that day, but it went well. I remember my first video being very nervous about the reaction. It's like, now I got 200 of them. And so I have, with history, you're afforded a very important thing of like, I lived through all of these things that I, I was terrified for. So even though Conan still feels nervous when the camera turns on, he reminds himself, I've done this a thousand times. True. And so, so there's a difference between danger and fear. Because what we first fear, when we first feel fear, we think it's danger. And so I felt like I was in danger when I had that gut feeling. And now I know it's just fear. It's just that inner cynic. And so that's nothing you need to respond to. It's nothing you need to obey. Danger is something you need to obey. That's something real. Fear is an opinion, and opinions can be argued with, and that's a very important distinction. That's right, and I also would like to point out that it. I'm sure you must have observed this kind of thing in your some of your students as well, and in my case also, when I used to perform these vocal exercises, I would lock myself into a room and perform these, and outside, you know, my parents, my brother, they all would make these noises that I'm doing something stupid and that sort of thing. But still, it's about not focusing on that. And I also had this thing in mind. What message would you like to give parents to children who are not only passionate in music, but take it in any field besides academics? They are showing interest and are doing great stuff. Like, what is your message? Because this is something which is missing in many people. It's an interesting message because what I tell parents is to tell their children no just like I was told. And the reason for that is that it didn't stop me. And if no does stop somebody, then it's not a passion of theirs. They're looking for something else, something, they're looking for attraction. They're looking for something easy to glorify. So I have, I have many parents that call me and say their daughter, let's say, is very talented and they want them to have her to have lessons and she wants to be a big star. And I say, great, just tell your daughter she's absolutely not allowed to sing. And you forbid her. And yeah. if, she, if she still sings, now you've got a real performer on your hands. But if you say no and she obeys that, then she doesn't have the grit that will be necessary to, to handle all the negativity that a performer, anybody in a creative field, has to really handle a, a, an amazing amount of negativity in order to put their own expressions. There is no safe place in order to be creative, it's always very vulnerable. So True. I think it's a disservice. I think it's a disservice <laughs> yeah. to yeah. tell somebody, oh, you can be anything you want to be. And and that kind of stuff. I think that's kind of too too uh, romantic. <laughs> yeah, I really like the talk about that, giving that, providing that tough love. And I want to know how can one draw the line between providing that tough love 
and really understanding your child, his interests. If, for example, in my case, I was spending three, four a.m. nights doing 3D animation on my computer. I had this YouTube channel. I didn't have a fancy laptop, not a high-speed, you know, processor and stuff. It would take eight times more more to edit the same thing as it would in a powerful computer. And I never asked my parents to get me that newer laptop to pay for it. But still, it feels as if there was a lack of understanding in what I wanted to do. And if I would spend that same time studying, my parents would be so happy. But if I once I spent that same time I was editing, because this project was so long, till 4 a.m., my father came and he just thrashed me for doing that. And I want to know how can one draw that line that providing that tough love and really understanding your child that he's putting in the work and this is something he believes in. Do you understand what your father's perspective was? Yes, I surely understood it, that he must have thought at that time my priorities were studies. And but similarly, at the same time, when I was making these videos, out of the blue, there was a person who had millions of views on YouTube, about 60,000 subscribers. And out of the blue, he just gave me a shout out on Instagram saying, this person makes me laugh so much. So I knew this had value. This was not a time pass. And I had belief in it. I was putting in the work, making the best use of the resources I have. Still, there was a lack of understanding and it kind of you know, remains inside. Oh, yes. And so what I'm saying to you, though, is that the idea... Your father doesn't understand the world that you entered. He doesn't have a, uh, a file, if you will, on board that allows him to understand why somebody would put eight hours into sitting in front of a computer and not end up with an A on a test at the end of it. And so my father didn't understand why I would put eight hours into writing a song that he didn't think was very good at the end. And so it, it their perspective is to be honored as well. And it's not for your family or your close friends to believe in you. It's for you to believe in you. And what you will attract, just like this stranger who has 60,000 followers, right? He connected with you and understood you, right? And the fact that it's not our parents, the fact that it's not our siblings, it tends to make us feel a little insulted that we're not being recognized for our greatness or our heroism in our own house. But the fact of you are being recognized in people that do understand your world is the only indicator you need. Your father will always go, I don't know, he's into this podcast now. I don't see what's gonna happen with like, what is, what's a podcast anyway? He's pretty happy about it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so all I'm saying is, I'm sure there are things your father's still not gonna understand uh, you know, the artist Madonna, right? The yeah. female, sure. Her father still doesn't think that she is, you know, very good singer and that she has a, you know, she, he doesn't understand who she is to other people because in his mind, that's his daughter. She's just always made like, you know, mistakes in his mind. And so it's important for you to see that parents are humans and that they have perspectives that are limited. And so they only care for us, right? But they can only care in their perspective. So when you go outside of that, in their view, you're wasting your time, you're making a mistake. It's unknown to them where this will lead. So your inspiration has to go against their authority, just like I did, just like many artists do. And that's why I, I tell parents, just make sure they eat, they sleep, 
They get decent grades in school, like the basics, because when you fail, when there is something that really disturbs you, you're going to need a parental, you're going to need somebody that didn't encourage you so you don't feel like a failure in your house. Because you will always be their son. And that's important that no matter what level of success you achieve, you're going to get heartbroken, you're going to have disappointments, and you're going to need to call your mother and father and go, ah, I really wanted this award. I thought I was going to get it, but I didn't, I didn't achieve it. And they'll be like, ah, don't worry about that. And, and they're going to have a completely different set of standards for you. And that'll be really good for you to hear at that moment when you're feeling like you just got passed on, passed over or disrespected in your industry. Truly makes sense. And it surely reminds me of the movie Bohemian Rhapsody on Freddie Mercury's life and how he used to think that his father doesn't understand. And he was right at that time. Still, when he was performing his last Live Aid concert, before that, he met his parents and had a nice conversation because it really helps in calming you down from disappointments. And I truly understand that perspective and I have surely respect for it. Uh, I've even heard you... I just want to add with that is that parents should not be fans. They should not be a fan of their of their offspring because they'll need to be a parent. And right now, I see a lot of parents that want to be fans or friends to their kids. And that means there is no parent in the house and there needs to be some some of that. True. It's more important to be a role model for your child so that he looks <laughs> up to you. And I completely agree with you on that. And I just want to know that what difference would you think it would make to your singing career if you were born in this day and age with so many resources available? Because I've read you were a really passionate performer since childhood. Yes, I don't know. I, 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 it's, there's a good and a bad about today in that everything with the internet is available. So I'm sure I wouldn't have gone to any formal training. I think I would have done what you did and that is just go on YouTube and learn how to sing. I'm sure of it, because uh, it's just such an incredible resource. But also, I'm glad that in my beginning days of performing, there were no cell phone videos of those performances. I'm glad about that, because, yeah. because performers need to be able to grow and fail and be bad in order to be good. And if there is a record of that in the beginning, and people are very mean online. And so if I had to handle, you know, if I posted early performances of myself, and the haters were coming at me. I, I, I'm not sure what direction that would have taken me in. But when you do that in a small bubble, whereas I played in, you know, in bars for a long time, many, 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 many times. And sometimes people would boo or, you know, say an insult. But then right there in your face would be someone else going like, you're fantastic. And then somebody's going, you suck, you know, at the same time. And that's much easier to process when you're right there and they're right in your face. Then when you're reading it online, because the negative me wants to read you suck over and over again and skip over how good I am, the, you know, the positive comments. And so I, I think today kids are very sensitive because of that, because everything is so vulnerable. If you post something, you can get a lot of hate, like a world's worth of hate coming at you. And I just think that's unhealthy. True. I surely believe that nowadays there are these keyboard warriors who are always there to <laughs> spam and bring you down. And it happens with any creative person who's trying to make it nowadays. Right. But it all has its own advantages and disadvantages as well. 
and I, mm-hmm. I, you know my favorite all-time singer is steven tyler i just have to get this on my chest and he's your client i just can't stop knowing about how was it like working with him because he's such a crazy person in a good way and i read yeah, his really. book does the noise inside my head bother you and he said mm-hmm. I learned it from my father. His father was a key, professional keyboard player. Said I lived under the keyboard. My father taught me that each and every note is like a first kiss, and he doesn't see it as note. And it may sound crazy, still the kind of screams which he does it surely gives conveys the message that for him each and every note is like a first kiss. And I want to know what you learned or came to know about him while teaching him and making him. find out a healthy process because he's still going strong in his 60s 70s yeah so, <laughs> no i meant that performing in 60s he has recently turned 72 i believe right exactly and so so my point is uh, what i learned is that he has an enormous heart as you just described in other words his passion is overflowing all the time and that can be exhausting and that can be very addictive And so when I met him he was still in the in the depths of addiction and so this is going back many many years and Aerosmith was not the big band they were a huge band then they fell off and then I met him and boom they became a big band again this is before permanent vacation get a grip and pump those albums or when I basically was working with him and so I my job from his management company called me and said he is losing his voice too often And <clears throat> so if you can get him to sing multiple nights in a row that would mean the world to us because he was not rich at the time he was not a big star so they needed to keep going my first introduction with him you immediately get a sense of his passion how incredibly hungry he is for knowledge and how open he is for you know allowing his flaws to be known he was just very unique in that he was an open book here i well he didn't know me and we were sharing very intimate details about ourselves immediately and i i found that very uplifting because he was the first you know a lister the first famous person that i had started working with and i was uh, lucky to have him as the first because it allowed me to know that they are not tyrants tyrants they're not you know egomaniacs it, it, in a very delightful way he was very very refreshing to work with but his passion to me was what was so is what makes him a rock star is that yeah. he is very passionate the kiss i think from his father if you think about it what made him lose his voice was that the first word of the first song of a tour means as much to him as the last word of the last song on the tour so he doesn't hold back on that first word wow. where most singers would be like I have a long tour in front of me. I'm going to go really easy on these first shows because they're thinking I got to save myself. And he is somebody that dives in on the first song. I had to allow him to know, same as where we started today with saying that the push, that the drive in him, he applies that to his voice and so he overloads the voice with more energy than it takes to make the exact same sound. and that all what one really cares about is to make sure the sound is that kiss right make sure that people are hearing the sound you intended singers often equate the effort to the sound and so my thing is always how little can you spend and still get the exact same sound that's how you know where you're in balance 
is the second you're overspending, if I, if I buy something, here's a phone, and many people have paid very different amounts for the exact same phone because they would get it on sale or there's a, a promotion, right? And so if you buy it early, you're going to pay a lot for it. If you wait two years, you're going to pay much less for the same phone, exactly the same. So my True. point to singers, my same point to singers is that there's a sound. Ah, that's an easy sound to make. But if I go, yeah, if I make a harder sound, sounds like I'm putting a whole lot of effort behind that. And yet there is going to be a degree how much effort it takes to make that sound. If I don't spend an ounce more, not a, not a nickel more, I'll still get the exact same sound, but I'll also get the comfort the most comfort I can afford on that sound. So it's by reversing the agenda, instead of giving everything all you got, give the sounds what they require, that you're not holding anything back from the audience and you're saving your own voice from a lot of fatigue. You have also mentioned this in your book that while in the middle of a performance, when a singer has missed one of the high notes and they overcompensate it with more energy. And even while performing, sometimes we hear the speaker sound too loud in the background and that influences us. I want to know how can one stay more present? What are the techniques or tactics beforehand one can practice to not be influenced by these disturbances in between and still be original and true to what they have practiced and have that same emotional appeal? Fail. The easiest way is to fail. And so if you let your voice fail, now you know where too little is. So if I try to sing this note again, and if I give it too little, I, my voice will flounder around and that's not a sound that I want to intended to make. So that's too little. Ah, 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 ah. But if I go, ah, if I double the effort, I get the same kind of sound, but I'm spending way more effort to get the same pitch at the same volume. And so I'm always looking for where does my voice fail? That means it's too little. And therefore I need to come right up to, to balance in order to achieve. Now, the, our culture, and so does yours in India, is very afraid of public shame. That's one thing that drives many people is the fear of public shaming. And so it is taboo to crack, to hit a bad pitch, to misspeak, right? So many people are intimidated to release their voice in a performance because there may be public shaming coming back at them. And so most of the tensions we feel are fear of shame because it, of the possibility that something could crack or come out out of pitch. So releasing that, uh, the best way to do that would, I would sit in my car outside of a, a bar, let's say I'm about to perform. My warm-up would be me sounding bad. La, 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 la. I will purposely do that to desensitize my defensive nature. Because if I walk into that bar thinking I must sing perfectly, I'm going to have a horrible foundation for that voice. But if I walk in singing, I already made all my bad sounds. I made them back in the car. I got rid of all my ugly sounds. Now I can be free here because I know exactly where my voice needs to sit. But if I never challenge that, if I never touch that, then I'm always in fear of like, is this going to make a bad sound? Is this going to make a bad sound? So I'm afraid to walk through the song and that we can hear that when somebody is singing and they're afraid to do something wrong or bad, 
you can always hear that that real fear running their voice. That's what you don't hear yeah. from Steve Tyler. That's such a great thing which you have mentioned, and it's so useful for me right at this time about feeling before performing, and how you said, you know, singing exaggerating, exaggeratingly or in a low, putting in low pressure, and it's so helpful because it makes you and helps you adapt on stage if you have a slight disturbance in your note. And I yeah. would surely try keep a track of time, even though I've got some great questions planned. And I've even mentioned, heard you mention about the difference between vocalizing and singing, which is really important. That vocalizing is going into the mechanics or producing the sound, whereas singing is pure emotional expression. How can one balance the time between vocalizing and singing? Because both aspects needs to be developed before the performance. Great question. Only in your mind do the two exist. So when I'm vocalizing, I'm thinking about my, myself. I'm thinking about my instrument, my performance. When I'm singing, I should be thinking about the listener. So it's a communication. It's a connection. And so therefore, that's a mental shift. And if I'm spending too much time thinking about myself, I'm being greedy as a performer. That to me is very self-serving, right? And so as a performer, I make sure that I vocalize offstage but when I sing or teach, for instance, I'm not thinking about what it is I want to say. I'm thinking about what it is you asked me and how can I fill that need that you just, you know, you just inquired about. So my point to you is the, the idea of just singing three notes. La, 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 la. If I ask for those notes to come out at that sound, that's a successful vocalization. If I go la, la, la. La, la, and one of those notes skips out on me, boom, that triggers my mind to go, hey, I didn't ask for that little slip. What happened just there? So I'll remind myself just to re-intend. La, 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 la. No, I just pushed that high note now. I'm punishing it. So I'm, I'm talking to myself about my instrument. That's vocalizing. Now, if I sing, I don't know why, I, and my voice cracks like that, I have to immediately go into my, my frame of mind, reminding myself that I'm singing to somebody. And that means I am here for them. That thing that I just cracked, I cannot solve it. I cannot know that that disturbed my listener. I have to move on from that because it would be really selfish of me to dwell on that while the listener is still waiting for what's about to come. I'm looking in the mirror, wondering if what I did was worthy. And so it's a mindset. And that's the difference between vocalizing and singing. Yeah, and I really like how you use those analogies in between, like looking myself in the mirror, even though you're sitting in front of one. And I really like the mention which you put on having that tone, that even if you have the perfect pitch, it's really important to have that quality in your voice because audience can feel it straight away before even the first word comes out of your mouth. I want to know how can one focus on developing their own tone and finding that thing that differentiates themselves? How can one approach it? What is it that keeps you from having a wide variety of tones? What do you think? I sometimes think that when I get exposed to so many singers, I do not know while singing as if it's a combination of their voices, which is coming out of me, or is it something which is coming out of my own self? Oh, you cannot separate that. And so my point to you is we are all a, a mixing bowl of inspirations. 
So I have Stevie Wonder in there. I have Ozzy Osbourne in there. I have Paul Rogers in there. I have, you know, I've many singers that I admire in my mixing bowl that are in there as influences. And then I have my DNA and you have your DNA. You have your parents. I have my parents. They're all a bunch of factors in there. My point, my question to you was, what makes your voice in a, a narrow bandwidth is inhibition, not ignorance. So there's nothing you need to know that would widen your voice, but that there is no harm that will come to you when you express yourself more fully. Because that one belief that there is harm to you that will come if you express yourself fully, that's a lie. And that's, that is a, a lie that a young man tells himself and so many young men will speak with a very narrow tone. Hey, what's up, Parth? How you doing? Where do you want to go tonight? Where uh, you want to stop hang? reminding off my friends. <laughs> They're all the same. They're the same all around the world. Because we don't want to sound stupid. We don't want to sound, you know, we don't want to make a bad move. So we make no move. And then you get somebody like Tyler. It's like, hey, how you doing? Everybody? Let's go over there. It's like Everybody's like, wow, what's with him? That's a rock star. He breaks the rules, right? And those are unwritten rules that everybody, all guys around 17 years old need to talk like robots. Because if you get too excited, your voice will crack like this. And that's the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen to a 17-year-old guy. That's right. And another uh, thing which I had in mind was when I was practicing that exercise in your book where it said, just over-exaggerate while practicing. What happens is when I over-exaggerate my facial muscles and bodily movements, what happens is my voice starts to break when I sing, especially during the high notes, my voice breaks. So how can I remain conscious and what should I do at that time? Let it break or focus on something? Let it break because that, has, that, uh, that gives you no harm. There is absolutely no harm coming to you physically when your voice breaks. It's only emotional. And so you need to desensitize yourself. The only reason your voice broke is because you don't venture into that area of timbre often. So it was brand new and uncoordinated. That's the only reason it's breaking. There, of course, are many exercises. You can create a deep you know, tone. Work yourself through that area, but that's with a prescribed tone. So that's still not going to apply directly to your singing. What those exercises can do, though, is just show you there are many pathways of singing through the change in the voice that are not breaking. They're very connected. And when you start to trust that there are many, then there can be times 10, times 100, times 1,000. It becomes logarithmic. In other words, any sound can be taken through the break, really but they're only the trusted sounds that are allowed. And so you have a small bank of trusted sounds. I have a bigger bank, that's all it is. And so when I was your age, I had a very small bank of trusted sounds. I could sing down here and I could scream up here. And I didn't have anything in between because none of that was trusted. So therefore I, as I went through that area, uh, it was cracking miserably. And of course, I wouldn't want to sing like that, but I vocalized like that a lot. And as it began to get less and less cracking, you ask yourself, like, what am I doing? And the point is, it's too small of an adjustment for us to feel. So if you're looking for something to do to not crack, you're chasing the wrong target. The target is not to not crack. The target is to express. And we forget that when our voice cracks, we get distracted. Like, oh, that was bad. I don't want to do that. And nobody ever complained about a crack if it was delivered 
and a heartfelt vocal line. No one ever laughed. True. That's so truthful. And it just really struck my heart. You really struck my heart on that one. I just want to know in the end that you yourself, I totally loved your tribute to great Bill Withers. And that was my favorite song, Lean On Me, which you sang. And I really like that Stevie Wonder touch, which you gave it to that song. And I want to know who are your singing influences that inspired you in the first place? Those four blind singers were the original ones. And, and so they, they, of course, are not famous. So I can't mention, I don't know their names. But as you said in the beginning, look at what they did. Their four blind guys didn't know there was an 11-year-old listening to them that ended up not only inspiring me to sing, but inspiring me to teach. And so think about all the thousands of people that I have touched teaching, and you now see what the ripple is from one blind person just singing for the joy of singing, touched me, and then rippled through me to throughout my life, those guys are long dead, I'm sure, but their voice still carries, still ripples through me and therefore in those I've worked with. So look at that beautiful lineage there. So, you know, I love Stevie Wonder, I love Bill Withers, of course, Paul Rogers was a huge admirer. I have a long list of performances more than singers. So in other words, it's not their voice I love, it is certain performances of each singer. Overall just, personality. Yeah, they just move me. And yeah. authenticity tends to be the common thread through there more than technique. But I am, uh, I am just a, a huge admirer of courageous people. And I find singers to be very courageous people because we sing in the face of the counterculture that says you shouldn't be doing this, right? You're acting like a two-year-old. And, and we are always at risk of making a mistake, but we have to sing anyway. And so there is a, it's a wonderful message when we sing to others that there is nothing to fear but whatever's going on inside you. It's not from the outside. Yeah, I truly love that answer. And do we have time for one last question? One quick one, then I have to go. Yeah, sure. There's this thing in my mind that you've been involved in so many bands and you even mentioned that some of them were just an inch away from getting a record deal. So you have a great deal of experience. Now, looking back, what do you think makes some bands like Queen, John Bon Jovi grow so much or in general, what information you wished you were aware of as a child that can be useful for both aspiring bands or even individual singers in today's scenario? You asked the best questions. I grew up with the guys in Bon Jovi. That was the same club circuit we were in. Wow. So I played with Tico and Richie and Alec and John was always at the back of the club. He was not singing on stage very often. And so he was in the back of the club talking about how he was going to be a rock star. And we all laughed at him because it's like, you don't even have a band right now. So he put a band together. And so what I learned from him and watching his ascension was that the intention he had was not to be locally famous. His intention was to be nationally, internationally famous. That was always his target. And many of the bands I was in are, you know, there would be the biggest club in the area. And that was our goal. And we assumed that if we made that goal, that it would lead to other things. But if you don't put those other things in your target first, that don't necessarily happen. And so many of the bands I was in, like I said, we would just be like, we just want to make a living or I just want to get a record deal. So we came very close to getting record deals 
and we didn't think after that point. And so therefore the record company, I think, understands this and that what they saw in John was that he had that vision to go further as a person. He had the bigger picture in mind and therefore he was a, that band was not a band contract. It was always a solo deal. So the band Bon Jovi was never a band contract. It was always just a single solo deal. And his band was under contract to him, not to the label. In other words, the label liked his vision. And as a young man, as I didn't have that vision, I had a smaller vision of just make it to the big club or make it, you know, I wanted a thousand people in the room and that would be my target. And I achieved those targets, but those were short-sighted. Those were small targets when it comes to the bigger thing. So you got to be careful what you wish for and shoot for exactly what you want because less than doesn't necessarily lead to more. True. Was so excited to hear that you even, you know, got to meet all the band members and John Bon Jovi himself. And I particularly think this is a really important component. Even Muhammad Ali, he used to call himself the greatest before even uh, fighting a professional bout, which is a wow. hell of a statement to make. And I truly admire you for how much you have contributed to the music industry truly respect you for what kind of resources you are providing to young aspiring singers out there because believe me many people can't even afford these kinds of things and spend hundreds and thousands of dollars especially during these times you are doing such a great job i'm pretty sure history would surely remember a great and a passionate person like you for such great contributions thank you very much for sharing your time with me and i hope you had a great time as well I did. You you asked perfect questions and I, and I always enjoy speaking with another passionate person. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much and have a nice day. You too. Thank you.